Hello. Hello, everybody. Uh, we're delighted to be here with you today on this gorgeous sunny day in Adelaide. Um, I'm Dr. Hannah Critchlow. I'm a neuroscientist, author, and broadcaster from Cambridge University. And I'm delighted to be chairing today's session with the absolutely incredible Jess Scully. Uh, and we're going to be talking about her first book, Glimpses of Utopia, Real Ideas for a Fairer World, which is a fantastic um, book. We're going to be delving into some of the examples that she talks about uh, here. Um, so to start, uh, we acknowledge the Ghana people uh, the traditional custodians of the Adelaide Plains and pay respects to elders past, present and future. We recognize and respect their cultural heritage, beliefs and relationship with the land. We acknowledge that they are of continuing importance to the Ghana people living today. Um, and some information for you, please turn your phones to silent. Uh, if you're tweeting or Instagramming, the hashtag is hashtag ADLWW, so that's hashtag ADLWW. And we ask that you support our authors and Adelaide Writers Week by purchasing books in the book tent. Uh, and there'll be a book signing at the end of this session with Jess appearing in person. Um, so you'll get to also uh, talk with her then, uh, if you'd like to. So Jess, um, is a curator who uses creativity to engage people in the knowledge, economy, and urban life in the 21st century. She works to shape a sustainable and inclusive future, and in 2019, she was elected as Deputy Lord Mayor of the City of Sydney. Before that, she founded the groundbreaking festival Vivid Ideas, Australia's largest creative industries event, supporting ta emerging talent through projects such as Qantas Spirit of Youth Awards and transformed public spaces as a public art curator. She's also worked as a policy advisor, radio host and magazine editor, so she's been quite busy. Um, as a counsellor, Jess advocates for new models to address the housing crisis and support workforces of the future. She's working on reviving nightlife and expanding access to culture and protecting digital rights in the public realm. She's committed to opening up politics to younger and more diverse people to expand who plays the role in shaping the life of the city. Um, and in her fantastic book, which was long-listed uh, last week for one of the Australian Book Awards, um, Glimpses of Utopia, is basically a compendium, and she travels the globe searching for ideas and pragmatic solutions for how we can readdress um, some of the problems within our democracy and within the way that we structure our society and civilization. Um, and we're going to be talking about some of these examples today. Um, towards the end of the session, there'll be an opportunity for you all to ask questions as well. Um, so Jess, I wanted to start really talking about um, how you can get more people, different people, uh, a, a, a broader cognitive diversity involved in shaping politics. Yeah, and thank you, Hannah. And it's, I'm so excited to be here, everyone. Wow. So my book came out in August, but um, this is the first real crowd in a, in a garden. I, you know, I, this festival is extraordinary. It's so wonderful to be here with you all. I also want to acknowledge that we're meeting on Aboriginal land um, and to extend my respect to elders past and present too. Um, and thank you for that lovely intro as well, Hannah. Um, and, you know, um, thank you. Um, oh, you know, we need more diversity of thought. And I know that's what you really focus on is, is cognitive diversity. But if you look at Canberra, and we're all looking to Canberra quite a lot at the moment, aren't we? Um, one of their fundamental problems there and in, you know, whether it's here on North Terrace or it's on Macquarie Street or on Spring Street, 
we have a, a real lack of diversity in leadership in Australia. You know, um, there was some research that BuzzFeed conducted in 2018 and they found that the average Australian politician was a guy named Andrew. Because at the time, there were eight Andrews. Now, there's nine Andrews in federal parliament. And Andrew is um, a, a, a white Anglo-Saxon male who's um, married with two children, two houses and two degrees, and one of them is a law degree. Now, look... Nothing against Andrew. He seems like a nice guy. I like some of the Andrews that we have. Um, but it's, we're asking too much of him if we're expecting Andrew to understand the depth and breadth of human experience and to make meaningful decisions about things like childcare, for example. You know, it's just outside of his realm of experience. So if we... And we need to, in the long term, get more non-Andrews involved in politics. Um, but... Until we get there, because time is of the essence, there are a whole lot of different ways that we can uh, bring more cognitive diversity and diversity of life experience into our decision-making processes. And there are some models all over the world that we can borrow from. Um, and there are some um, that I'm, I'm hoping that we can advocate for here, like a Citizens' Convention on Climate. Um, you guys had a Citizens' Jury a few years ago in South Australia that was really significant. Um, so we can talk more about that as well. Mm -hmm. And you, um, you actually say... In the book, I roll my eyes when people talk about diversity, when what they really mean is reality. Yeah. Um, it's trying to get a representative reality um, governing and making decisions. So there's a lovely um, example that you talk about in Porto Alegre. Yeah, uh, Porto Alegre in, in Brazil. Mm -hmm. So Brazil, actually, um, Porto Alegre and Belo Horizonte are the two cities that um, kind of pioneered this thing called participatory budgeting. And essentially, this is a public decision-making process where a portion of the city's budget is put up for the community to put forward ideas for the projects that they would like to see invested in. But here's the hard part. The community have to also decide which ones they want to invest in. And so it's a process of public negotiation um, and, and uh, understanding that your neighbours also have valid concerns. And look, that's quite useful um, from a local government perspective. That's pretty useful as well because quite often we can think that our cause or our street or our neighbourhood or our sport needs all the funding or is the most in need. But when we can understand what our neighbours are experiencing and what their priorities are, we um, are more informed as citizens and we're more able to determine where um, our commonwealth should be allocated. So, um, there's, so that, that grew um, in the 80s and has been slowly adopted in different ways around the world. And now there are some kind of high-tech versions of, of participatory budgeting as well. And also the example of Iceland after the financial crisis, um, the best party. Oh, my gosh, so good. So there are lots of really well-named revolutions in the book, um, but the um, Iceland had the best-named revolution, which was the pots and pans revolution. And that's because after the financial crisis... So, so Iceland had become like a, a financial superpower. Now, this is the population of Tasmania, right? And they were people were being encouraged to take out mortgages in yen and pounds. They were being encouraged to do all these cross-currency loans and they had these, these guys called the corporate Vikings who were just going and buying up all of these big chains overseas. They were leading this ridiculous um, money, uh, financial speculation fueled boom and it all came crashing down. But in Iceland, they actually were the only country that held their financial sector to account. And the people came together and got their pots 
and pans and just banged their pots and pans outside Parliament until the government resigned. Uh, useful tip. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and so when the government resigned, they conscripted uh, a bunch of citizens to rewrite the constitution and they gave them eight weeks to rewrite the constitution. So the people uh, crowdsourced input on YouTube comments and Facebook posts about how to rewrite the constitution. And at the time, this, um, this comedian named Jong Na stood for election and said, um, yeah, we have the best party. Um, we don't have any policies, but if you go to this platform, which was this public, this citizen decision-making platform, tell us what our policies should be. And so the people of Iceland became um, accustomed to the idea of having active input in policy-making and decision-making. And, um, and a whole bunch of gaming nerds set up really cool platforms for people to get involved. And so um, Reykjavik had a population of 120,000 people. 40,000 of those citizens were involved in um, real-time policy decision-making and they continue to be to this day is a really strong um, tradition of it there. So these are the kinds of things we can borrow and bring into our democracy as well. And there's also the example in Belgium. Oh, yeah. So, um, so this is this is very similar. It's actually the same crew who did your citizens' jury on nuclear waste. Does anyone remember this? Right? Yeah. So, so South SA had a citizens' jury on nuclear waste um, and whether or not they should accept it here and, and store it here. Mm. Um, and so, this process of citizens' juries, also known as citizens' assemblies or citizens' conventions, is where you do a civic lottery. You basically select a group that is more representative than the Andrews. It's people who represent the community by age, gender, location, education and income. And you put them in a room, you pay them so that everyone can afford to participate and you give them access to all the information and to experts. And then the citizens themselves write the policy and they write the report. And we're all eminently capable of this. You know, this is the thing. And, and in, in Belgium, they've done this as well. And in this part of Eupen, in this part of Belgium, they've embedded it into their normal processes of decision-making. So I think a, a country like Australia um, and, and maybe each of our states too could benefit from a citizens' convention process, particularly around intractable um, and difficult social um, questions or political questions like climate action. But places like Ireland have also done it um, around um, abortion uh, reform and, um, and marriage equality as well. So it's a way of, of cutting through party politics and um, also giving politicians courage when they um, are sort of boxed into a corner by their big donors, by the media, by marginal seats and, and the kinds of uh, the, the, the undemocratic forces that can influence policymaking. Mm -hmm. Um, and I wanted to take a step back, really, and talk a little bit about your personal experiences growing up um, and also your heritage as well and what you discovered when you went and visited Chile and whether that's informed any of your ideas. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, oh, I guess, you know, I'm, like, it's a pretty typical Australian thing to, like, come from... Your parents come from somewhere else, right? So, um, you know, where I'm from in the city of Sydney... 50% of us were either born overseas or have one parent born overseas. So I think that's actually one of what most Australians experience. And, and I think because of that, we often have this 
global set of reference points and connections that we might not necessarily see reflected in our national discourse or in our politics. But my um, my mum came here from Chile and my dad came here from India. Um, not here, they went to Burwood um, in in Sydney, and they that's where they met at the bank. And um, and so uh, they'd both come from very different cultural contexts. Um, but my mum specifically had come from a military coup, and um, and Chile has been a country that um, you know has um, suffered at the hands of sort of. Um, economic experimentation that's had a lot of social impacts. Um, and just last year, oh, you know, end, end of 2019 and then into 2020, um, uh, Chileans rose up and said, you know, basically their constitution was written by Pinochet and his pals on the way out of power. And the way that they framed their constitution was to say, we should write it so that even if our fiercest enemies get into power, they will be forced to govern in a way that we would approve of. And it worked for 30 years. You know, Chile is seen as one of the success stories of Latin America, but it's a place of deep inequality. You know, it's a place where there are shanty towns that ring wealthy cities. Um, and it's a place that's seen as a tech capital of South America, but it's also a place where, where workers don't own the tools that they go and work on a work site with, you know? Um, and finally, they tried to put the subway fares up. Did, any, did people see this revolution? Basically, they also got the pots and pans out. So um, they tried to put the subway fares up uh, people just took to the streets, they rioted for months on end and they managed to get the government to agree uh, to a constitutional referendum and they're now in the process of rewriting their constitution to finally embed things like um, the right to free education, the right to free healthcare, a whole uh, pension reform, a whole bunch of, of social reforms um, that have been long overdue. Uh, but you know, there's the way that they did that was through forming this thing called um, La Mesa de Unidad Social, which is basically like the table of social unity. It was a whole discordant mix of um, civil society organisations and advocacy groups from LGBTQI groups to unions to the, the parents of the disappeared to, you know, all of these people who wouldn't have worked together in the past and they came together to try and set a common set of goals. And that's how, I think that's the story that we can take from Chile's experience and try to bring to our own, you know, how can we find common cause in campaigning and how do we aim for really deep and big picture change, like changing the constitution. Mm -hmm. um, and then also you talk about creating business cooperatives. And there's some lovely examples of how we can start kind of sharing ownership of businesses amongst its employees, for example. So in, in England, um, we've got <laughs> one of oh, the yeah, right? <laughs> John Lewis. John Lewis and Waitrose, which are the big giants that every... Socialist icons, Waitrose. <laughs> and everybody loves John Lewis and Waitrose. And I hadn't really realised why until I read this book. Yeah. Okay, so it all seems very random, right? Uh, when, you know, I'm now we're talking about uh, co-ops. But basically, once I started writing the book, I realised all of these things are interconnected. And it's quite hard to tell the story of, like, of, of political change without trying to explain how you pay for it. Uh, and so I talked a lot about um, different approaches to financial models and different um, types of business models that 
um, offered more diversity. So, mm. so something that um, we, we talk about choice and kind of a choice in the free market, but we're often just choosing between a lot of the same flavors. We're not actually choosing between different organization or business types that can have different ends other than extracting wealth for a couple of shareholders, right? Or a couple of owners. And so one of the things that I think that is really useful in building a fairer economy is having um, worker-owned enterprises. And John Lewis and Waitrose, um, and there are a whole bunch of other unexpected ones like um, Arup, a very big um, engineering and consultancy firm, for example, um, that is owned entirely by the people who work there. And because of that, um, they reinvest in the people who work there and they prioritise the welfare of those people and, the, um, and often the um, positive environmental footprint of those organisations because they are more accountable to the people who work there and live near to them. And there are some great examples also from Australia. There's um, uh, a care company or organisation called The Cooperative Life who um, have adapted around the NDIS and, and are providing services through worker-owned care. Um, and the difference is, you know, and if anyone was at the Breakfast with Papers this morning, we talked about this as well. You know, we have this very extractive approach to care in Australia and in the UK um, and um, in, in particular where, you know, someone might be paying $60 an hour from their their pay from their care um, budget or fund, but the worker only gets twenty of that, and then forty of it goes to a company that's headquartered in the Bahamas or something. You know, so we have to address the the business models in order to get fairer outcomes for the people who are being cared for and for the carers as well. Mm -hmm. Do you think there's a possibility? So I'm watching. Um England uh, and seeing the NHS being decimated, yeah. do you think there's a there's a there's there's a possibility that the NHS could start to become owned by the doctors and the nurses and the the staff that work there? There are some really interesting things um, going on in England mm. where. Um, where people are talking about this approach called universal basic services, which is different to universal basic income. So basically it's the idea that we fund the services that we all need as humans to live. You know, healthcare, uh, it's radical, right? I mean, who could imagine such a thing? Um, uh, healthcare, education, mm -hmm. internet, transport, legal, like as a whole amazing um, slate of things and uh, the, the people who have worked on this um, and there's a, a really interesting um, I think it's UCL London a bunch of people working on this have found it's, it's more efficient like you actually save more money <laughs> when you when you have um, these services being provided rather than being um, individually outsourced to people to purchase in the market but you're not just buying them from this big grey organization the best way to get value is to have devolution which i know has been a big to topic of conversation in the uk but this idea of um, locally specific um, uh, services rooted in place with different models that are adapted to the needs of the communities and the cultures in each place so you would have a childcare service for example that is adapted to the local conditions of that place that might receive funding to to, to subsidise what it's doing, but it's different to the one that's down the road. So how do we underwrite a system that also has diversity and local specificity within it? Mm -hmm. And that's the I think that's the way, the kind of complexity of the 21st century is figuring out how you have uh, local uh, uniqueness along with um, kind of global support structures underwriting it. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, 
And you had a really pivotal conversation with Stephanie Guitar oh, yeah. in South Dakota. Yeah. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that and some of the experiences? Sure. So, and you know, another thing that um, that I kept running into in the book or in researching this book was that a lot of these things weren't very new. Like, who's sitting here going, "Yeah, we were talking about cooperatives in the '70s." Like you know this isn't new stuff for example and 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 some of this is even older knowledge than that some of this is first nations knowledge that has been um marginalized or excluded from the conversation um and and you know, one of the the most um moving conversations i had was also with the aboriginal carbon fund um, which operates in the north of australia which is about supporting uh, traditional owners in land management practices that they have been practicing as part of their culture and which also have an incredibly positive um, carbon abatement um, capacity and, you know, 4% of Australian, Australia's carbon emissions come from um, uncontrolled uh, grass fire burning, for example. And if you took the carbon credits from that and use it to pay traditional owners to undertake their practices and do accounting of that in a traditionally, uh, in, in a, a culturally um, appropriate way, you would get great carbon and social outcomes. So, you know, those sorts of things. But Stephanie is, um, is a Lakota woman um, from South Dakota and she was talking about this practice in relation to caring for people within her community. And, you know, she lives in um, a, a Native American community that has um, been excluded and marginalised for, you know, generations. And what they're trying to do is, is use the tools of community wealth building, which is a, um, a, a social change approach that is really worth exploring, uh, to, to see how they could get, you know, the transactional economy that we live in to value the care and the human approaches that are really inherent in First Nations um, uh, philosophies and spirituality. And so that's something that is is harder to tackle, but something we need to think about in, in the 21st century is, you know, how do we make accounting systems that pay for healthier, happier humans? Because at the moment, the health and, um, and, and emotional connection and the education of, of humans is this sort of externality that's left out of our economy. You know, we're all just not even counted how we feel or how connected we are to each other or whether we're mentally healthy or not, you know. It's not even part of the equation. And if we had more holistic approaches, which many times are evident in First Nations culture, First Nation cultures, we could start to see a more um, accurate accounting in our economy. Mm -hmm. And then you're talking about some absolutely wonderful examples of how we could overhaul the economic model. Yeah, um, and how we could just a few things in there like that. <laughs> so there's a terrible example of Tesla. Oh yeah, which I uh, which I hadn't properly realised. And then the good example of how of how to do it with Nokia. Yeah, yeah. So um, so again, you know, how do you pay for all this? This sounds great. How do you pay for it? Was I I could hear that voice in my head the whole time I was writing the book. Mm -hmm. Because here's the thing, there's plenty of money to pay for this stuff. We're just choosing to subsidise the worst outcomes, right? We've got these, we're subsidising terrible extractive economy outcomes that are uh, have a huge opportunity cost with investment in renewables and um, new, um, new ways of, of generating energy or, or doing business. We're choosing to create billionaires rather than redistribute wealth. And, you know, through the pandemic, the wealth of billionaires went up by $3 trillion, uh, while most of us did not see our wealth increase. Um, so 
how can we um, start to redirect the subsidies that we have? And there's a really interesting um, academic, Mariana Mazzucato, um, and, and a number of people from the UK and, and from um, Italy, and there's a number of people doing work in this um, area at the moment. And what they're doing is they're saying, all a lot of this innovation economy that we hear so much about, you know, Bill and Elon and Steve and Jeff and all the rest of them, they're not solo geniuses, you know. They're standing on a whole lot of public investment in research and development, in universities, um, in in science. Uh, and if and Mar what Mariana Mazzucato said was, if you look at everything that makes an iPhone smart, all of it came from public research. And yet we've allowed a couple of businesses to extract all of the benefit from that and then siphon it off to a bunch of offshore um, companies. So how do we start to recoup the public investment in, in, in innovation? Um, and uh, Tesla is an example where the um, US government invested something like $430 million in Tesla at a crucial point in their um, business growth to help them build their first factory. Um, and they were supposed to get a portion of the company in in return, but um, Elon Musk repaid the, the debt before that clause came into effect. Um, and, and basically the, the US population missed out on something like $11 billion worth of, of Tesla stock as a result. But Nokia in Finland, like who remembers Nokia, right? Connecting people. So, uh, so Nokia was similarly uh, subsidised by the Finnish government in the 70s when they made the transition from being, um, I think they were, you know, they, they initially were like a paper goods company and then they went into rubber and then they went into, I mean, they had quite a journey. They pivoted quite a lot. And then, um, but eventually when they started to go into telecommunications, they got an investment from the Finnish government. The Finnish government kept that investment and then they cashed out at the right time. And they used that money to invest in this organisation called Citra, which is the sort of Brains Trust Future Fund of Finland. It's now got an endowment of billions of euros. And they use that money to fund the kind of social conversations that we don't have in this country. Uh, and they use it to fund investments in R&D in transitioning Finland to um, a sustainable future. So there are models of how we could recoup some of that public investment in innovation. Mm -hmm. We're just not asking for it. And I think it's because, and you know, this is the reason I wrote the book, is we, we have a paucity of models and options to choose from. And I want to give us all a greater range, a greater palette of colours to paint with when it comes to policy making. And then also within your book, you're talking about the fact that, um, and I had no idea about this, we spend something like $400 billion a year to make fossil fuels cheaper. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, I mean, in Australia, it's, I think, $29 billion. Um, and uh, globally, it's at least $430 billion. And it's about a hundred and. 190, I think, mil a billion um, on making uh, on water as well. So, again, this is where we we don't realise how much we're paying for an unsustainable status quo. And so, I think what we what we can all do as active citizens is start to learn this and start to push back when we're told that there isn't money for a fairer society because there is. It's just being spent to benefit a very few people and to prop up a whole lot of really dying industries that are taking us down with them. And how do we go about getting our voices heard? 
once we're, we're citizens that are engaged, uh, we're interested in particular aspects of how our societies run, how do we actually go about making a change? Um, I think there's a couple of things. I think you have to, um, I think it's useful to work at both a, a kind of federal level and a state level and a local level. You know, at that big picture for the federal level, um, I think it's about advocating for alternatives um, to the status quo and, and putting forward actionable policy proposals, you know, asking people who represent us to take actions that are aligned with our values. And I think one thing we could all do, and I, I'm going to be working on this this year, is to push for a citizens' convention on climate. So this is something that took place in France in 2020. Did anyone hear about this? No? Oh, guys, yes, thank you. Go look into this. So Macron, not a radical by any stretch of the imagination, basically uh, had, you know, the yellow vest movement happened in France where basically a whole lot of people said the environmental, the, the carbon taxes you've brought in or the petrol taxes you've brought in have had a disproportionate impact on poorer people, on rural people, um, and we won't take it anymore. So they all put on these those like high-vis vests and they started blockading the streets. And he was just like, I don't know what to do with this who can solve this problem for me? I know, the Citizens' Convention. So they threw policymaking over the Citizens' Convention. And over the course of nine months, 150 French citizens aged 16 to 90 went through all of the policy and they came up with 179 policy recommendations to French Parliament. And these are huge recommendations. I mean, from, from investing in retrofitting housing, which is a, a something we really need to do here for efficiency, um, to removing subsidies to fossil fuels, you know, a whole lot around um, energy efficiency, a whole lot on sustainable agriculture, really thoughtful, in-depth um, policy proposals. Um, and and they did the debating, they wrote the, the report and they took it to Macron and Macron agreed to implement all but three of those policy recommendations and took it to French Parliament in one omnibus bill. And what this group did as well in demanding this green recovery from the crisis was to also say that they want to change the French constitution to embed the crime of ecocide into the first, um, the first article of the French constitution so that protecting the environment is actually the responsibility of government. Imagine if we did that here. You know, 75 to 85% of Australians want action on climate change, but our political process is not going to deliver it. So we need to give politicians cover by taking that responsibility away from them and demanding that citizens be empowered to come up with our climate policy at a state and federal level. So I think that's one way that we can make big change. And then at a local level, because that's where I operate, I think we often don't recognise or get involved with concrete climate action when it takes place in our street, right? Because concrete climate action in your street looks like a tree instead of a car space. It looks like a cycle lane instead of a car parking lane. I mean, that's hard to do in our suburbs because it's real, it's right where we live and it inconveniences us a lot of the time. And I only hear from people who are opposed to that. And I never hear from people who want that and who will stand up and fight for it and who will, who will 
back you if you are courageous as a leader and try and take that action. So what I would like everyone to do is to figure out what is happening that's tangible climate action at a local level that you can be a proactive and positive voice in support of. What are the policy proposals happening near you? Are they around waste? Are they around energy generation? Are they around active transport? You know, what is the tangible concrete climate action near you that is receiving only opposition and no support? And how can you be one of those voices of support. Brilliant, thank you. And then there's some fantastic research that's coming out of America. Professor Erin, who's looking at um, how you can galvanize change, how you can actually cause a revolution in policy by peaceful protest. And there's a magic number, a certain threshold when she's looked over. It's this many. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's a very small number yeah. of people. That's about 3% of a population. If they get engaged in a um, particular act um, and they engage in peaceful protest. So she looked at um, studies for over the last 100 years um, of, of any change that's occurred from different countries. And 3% of the population, if they're getting engaged with a particular issue and um, getting engaged with peaceful protest, um, then that causes a, a change to occur at the federal level in terms of policy change. And this is something that Extinction Rebellion have particularly grabbed hold of um, and are trying to galvanise 3.5% of the, the entire world population. To try and I mean, and look at the, I mean, the next session here today, we have incredible speakers at the next session here today who are going to talk about protest and, and the role of protest. And so I'm not an expert in that. And I won't talk about protest, but what I will talk about is, you know... We have to try at the moment to try and represent that change within the political system that we have. And so for me, that is through the process of, um, at the local government level, through the process of community consultation that we, that local governments or state governments have to undertake. And they're so boring. Um, honestly. They are. I mean, and, and, you know, governments will do everything they can to try and make them a little bit more accessible and it'll be a web... We have a lovely website, Sydney or Say, I'll go check it out. You know, but, but for the most part, this is really... Um, incremental, it's small scale, you have to understand the process, you have to speak English, you have to feel entitled to have your say and most people don't actually fall into that bucket. So um, protest of course is really important but I, I think uh, filling in community consultation surveys, um, writing emails to people who represent you, uh, looking at the kinds of things that are, are, being, are coming up for decision making at your local level that actually is really impactful uh, because when you're not there, people who um, are more likely to represent the status quo are there and they're being heard loud and clear. So we need you. Um, and part of the book also looks at communication and how we talk to each other and how we engage in civil debate, particularly in a time when everything is becoming so polarised. Um, and there's some wonderful examples from Germany. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, this is the thing I struggle with the most. You know, I, I struggle the most with um, having empathy and understanding people who have a very different um, point of view to me and a different set of values and, like, not immediately going into, you know, BIFO, essentially. And I think... Uh, and I think we probably all had a version of this. And for me, I put it in the book, the argument I had with my auntie on Facebook. Um, look, 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 you know, bushfires. My auntie sent me a video which was like the greenies caused the bushfires. You know, did you get that email? Um, and I was like, no, 
you're wrong and you know this is why you're wrong and here's a guardian article which has always converted everyone um <laughs> so uh that didn't work and it just pushed us further apart uh and it's no way to change someone's mind or their heart or to feel like they're part of the solution um, and so th that's the thing I'm working on the most in myself and I'm trying to to have more empathy and understand and truly value a diversity in values and um, and that that is actually important for a good democracy as well uh, but there's a really great project that did this and it's called My Country Talks and um, 16 countries in the in Europe did it. Um, in May in 2019 uh, they basically got people to answer five questions about the future of the European Union, about refugees, about climate policy, you know, they found the most divisive questions they could. And then they paired people up who'd answered exactly the opposite to each other. And then they said, go and meet each other. And they did, 16,000 people from all across Europe met up with a person who had the exact opposite point of view to them and they had really lovely conversations. There were no fights because it turns out that when you're sitting one-on-one -on -one talking to someone, you have empathy and human connection and you find a way to connect with each other and to come to a shared understanding of each other. Um, and our media and political systems are not designed for that. But imagine how much better our public discourse and our public realm would be if we had um, the room and the infrastructure for those kinds of conversations. Um, I mean, it's a challenge because then if everyone feels great about each other, sure, but then how do we make difficult policy decisions when we continue to disagree? And how do you scale something like that up when it comes to um, a debate? But, but luckily, I think some of those systems of, of deliberative democracy, citizen decision-making, like citizens' juries, they're designed for that kind of consensus building and, and coming to a, a shared position as citizens. Mm -hmm. And as we're kind of incentivized almost, or the political system, the way that it's set up at the moment is very much trying to get people in a combative mode, very much against each other. Yeah. And there's a lovely example in Jonathan Sachs' books about morality, where he's on a plane, it's the Queen's chartered plane, um, and they're traveling overseas um, for a, a leading figure's funeral. And they've, within the plane, they've got uh, the British Prime Minister of the time, John Major, um, and also all of the opposition parties' leaders as well. So there's Tony Blair there, and there's Charles Kennedy from the Lib Dems. And, um, and Charles Kennedy turns around and says, hang on a second, we're, we're going to be stuck in this plane for the next eight hours. Um, why don't we just have a chat with each other? Why don't we talk about the important issues? And John uh, Major just turned around with a big smile and said, yes, fantastic. And they had a, an enlightening conversation and kind of worked together to try and think, think and, and, and talk to each other and engage with each other in a non-combative way. Why can't they do that all the time? <laughs> and what can we do to change the system? so that we get more collective intelligence? I think, I think we have to, I, th I think what we're missing at the moment, you know, I think we're asking too much of an adversarial Westminster political system to give us that. Um, and these people work really hard to get up to the top of Team Blue or Team Red, mm -hmm. and you know they're not going to you know back down, and they've got it, they've got, they're accountable to the people within their, their teams, and I get that. Um, but I think what we're missing is a civic realm, you know, a place where we have this conversation outside of writers' festivals, 
right? Because not that many of us go to writers' festivals. Um, and where do we have this conversation as a society? You know, the closest that we have is an election. And an election isn't, you know, isn't a place anymore where we debate what we value as a society and determine what our priorities should be for our shared endeavour as, you know, as citizens. It's now quite a transactional interaction between, you know, here's what I can give you and here's what I can give you. So we don't really have any room for that conversation and um, and I don't know if politics is the realm for that I think we need something aside from politics which is which is here you know which is which is a society um, and and we used to I think have that in the media mm -hmm. and we don't really have a diverse and flourishing media landscape where you can have a, a, um, a contest of ideas anymore so um, and even social media hasn't really provided us with that because it's algorithmically incentivized to be combative so that if there was something that you know if I was a billionaire and I could invest in something or if you know if, if if we could all work together on something it would be trying to create that space for public conversation and discourse which which funnily enough is what someone like an organization like Citra in Finland actually does using um, some of that recouped investment from from society mm -hmm. fantastic and then there's also a chapter where you talk about restoring the commons oh yeah yes so I focus on um, on the digital commons, um, and basically this is again again that little voice. How are we going to pay for it? How are we going to pay for it? Well, part of what we have to do to pay for it, uh, pay for this society that we want, is actually recouping some of the um, attention economy. So we all invest in and. Um, in, in social media platforms and we all contribute our time and attention and data um, to some really big companies who seem to be based on really small islands. And we, um, we don't get anything back from that. No, not from the public investment in the technology and the research that, that led to those platforms and not from the time and energy and personal data that we generate by using them every day. But there are moves and there's um, some projects in Barcelona and in Amsterdam in particular where they're saying, no, there is a thing called a data commons and it's basically a shared pool of information that we all generate by using uh, data and, and technology um, and we are going to license access to that data commons to you Facebook or Google uh, and you will abide by these terms if you use them and you will have to be this accountable and transparent and you have to pay for it mm -hmm. and that goes back into funding society which sounds fanciful but if we think about it, where we are in the evolution of the internet, we're 30 years into the internet. We are in the Wild West era of the internet era, of the internet century. And so it's entirely possible that we can start to establish ground rules now and enforce them. And in the book, I use the example of autopolo, which is one of my favorite examples in the book. So basically, when cars first came out, people thought it would be a really good idea to play polo with them. So they took all the doors off and they had four cars to a side on a football field with a basketball and they used to just play polo with these cars. And uh, unsurprisingly, it led to a lot of injuries. <laughs> and eventually, 
rules came in about wearing seatbelts and not playing polo with your vehicles on a field. And, you know, we're at the auto polo stage of the internet economy. Um, and I think we can start to bring some rules in at this point. It's not too late for us to humanise the internet. Mm -hmm. and, and we could derive a lot of benefit back for society if we did that. And it's not just the internet where we've got a huge amount of power and money that could be used for our society. Um, so my background is science, biological sciences. And so, for example, with 23andMe, the company, mm. where you send over a kind of a saliva sample and they'll analyse your DNA um, and then give you lots of information about yourself uh, or even your ancestors and your heritage. Um, what they've also done is they've taken that data because automatically you sign away your DNA sequence to them and they've sold all of that data from the hundreds of thousands of people that have um, kind of paid them £80 or $150, I think it is, to have their information. Um, they've basically sold all of that DNA data to the pharmaceutical giant GlaxoSmithKline for billions of dollars, billions of dollars. Um, and it, it just strikes me that it's conceivable that the NHS in the UK or any healthcare system could be set up by using society's DNA data and then selling, selling that Absolutely. or use, using it in order to fund the healthcare system. Well, again, imagine if we had a space for a civil, civic conversation where we said, okay, we have this data pool and it's, this is in this case the DNA data pool. Let's allow this set of free licenses for medical research that is, you know, for the public good. And here are the more expensive licenses for, you know, this healthcare company. And that money, we can transparently see how it's being reinvested. And we have a clear set of rules and expectations from citizens as to what will be done with our data because it's all so um, uh, obscure right now. It's all deliberately hidden from us. And as a result, I think we are all increasingly feeling more disempowered and um, uninformed and alienated from, um, uh, from a lot of these processes and these institutions that have been set up to benefit us or to protect us. So I think in part it's about rebuilding the income stream for these essential services, but also about rebuilding trust in society. And trust is one of the kind of core deficits that we have, understandably, because we have had a political system and an economic system that has been extractive and exploitative for, I don't know, a while, I'm thinking 50 years, 70 years, but, but for a while. And so we need to um, re establish the social contract that we're all buying into and I think the the data era is a really good jumping off point for having that conversation mm -hmm. but my question and this is the debate that Hannah and I have been having over the last day or so is where do we have that conversation because is it in the media is it through our politics is it in forums like this where can we have that debate in a nuanced and thoughtful way that isn't oppositional and that gives people access to the, all the information and that's why I'm, I'm quite excited about the idea of deliberative democracy because I think it's, it's an important tool to getting to that place. Mm -hmm. And then I'm aware of the time and I want to leave lots of time for questions from you guys. Um, but before we close, uh, if we all could take away from you three things that we can all do to help build our utopia vision for the future, what would those three things be? Um, this idea that climate action and social justice does happen on your street and if you don't show up someone else will so your street needs you so go and find out about what decisions are being made 
on your behalf in the places where you live and think about how you can be a force for positive change and a voice in support of, of, of courage and courageous action. That's really important. We never hear from you. So, so do that. And I don't think I need the other two. But that's, that's the one for me. But no, the next one I think is let's all work together to, to see if we can get something like a Citizens Convention on Climate happening in Australia. I think, I think that would be a really positive step forward. And the last thing I, I would say is um, please tell people not to lose hope because I think being despondent and giving up is, is um, a symptom of privilege. And I think actually we all have a responsibility to be lucky enough to, to, to have the leisure to sit in a, a place like this and to, to be able to pursue things that we love. You know, we have a responsibility to keep fighting even though it's hard and complicated and depressing. You know, so please tell people there are alternatives, that it's worth fighting and that you can make change uh, and, and just take one small action in a place close to you. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you, Jess. Um, so questions from you guys. If anyone's got a question, please do come up to the microphone here, uh, which will be cleaned in between each person. Uh, I have a question. Okay. Whilst people are kind of yeah, thinking caps on. Um, so you talk at the very end of the book, um, you talk about how you've been researching and writing this book with your 12-week-old baby strapped to your chest. Um, she might be in the audience at the moment, actually. <laughs> Yes, and, she is. Um, and how, uh, when you were writing and researching the book, Australia was actually on fire, yeah. and how you were feeling this despair. Yeah. Um, what kind of world do you want her to grow up in? What kind of world do you want her, her children to grow, to grow up in? Uh, well, she's uh, almost 18 months old now, um, and she's back there. And um, uh, I think I, you know, I feel a, a real anxiety you know when she was born she was born in September 2019 and the first three months of her life we couldn't go outside because the air was so toxic that we you couldn't be outside um, you know the, one of the first things I ever took her to that we ever took her to was the Sydney's burning march because the entire you know that the air was on fire it was insane and and I thought well what right do I have to bring a child into this into these conditions and into this world um, I just, I guess what I want to leave her is a sense that we are doing everything that we can to make sure that she has a fairer future and a world that is, um, that, that has a future, basically. So um, I think that fuels my sense of urgency uh, more than ever before. Mm -hmm. So we, we all have a duty for the next generations yeah. to ensure that we're going to be leaving them with a lasting legacy, which is a positive one. That's right. Some, yeah. Um, oh, there's one. Oh, thank you. Hello, my name's Moira. Uh, thank you. Thank you for all you do. Um, just looking around the audience, um, there's a pretty high number of women to men. And so the gender lens over this work, and uh, Mary Robinson, former president of Ireland, talked about uh, climate change being a man-made problem with feminist solutions. And so, and then we look at what's happening in the US, you know, on the life of black women, all those changes that are happening. So I'd really love to hear a little bit about your gender perspective on oh, this. 
Oh, what a great question. Thank you so much. And Mary Robinson, shout out to Mary Robinson. Incredible. If you don't already listen to the Mothers of Invention podcast that she does, she is just phenomenal. Um, and she talks about climate justice. And she's you know one of the first people I heard that idea from, this idea that our social justice solution and our climate action solutions are deeply intertwined. Um, and uh, in the book I write about uh, the, I guess, the feminist solutions that we're looking for are around centering uh, care in our economy. And, you know, care is something that has been excluded from our economy deliberately. You know, both um, Adam Smith and Karl Marx both had a really messed up understanding of women um, and they really bad relationships with women as well and and so they thought that everything that took place in a home was unproductive it wasn't something that would be counted in the economy and as a result we have a foundational flaw to our flaw to our economy in that we don't count care for the planet or for each other as something that's productive it's a cost um, and so there's a group called the women's budget group in the uk who have done some accounting around um, recovery from crisis and they found that for every dollar that you would invest in the care economy versus the construction or hard hat economy for a recovery you would generate twice as many jobs and a lasting economic and social impact that would have a lighter carbon footprint as well. So, um, you know, my career has been in working in the creative economy and I've thought about the, the knowledge and creative economy as our future, but I really think the care economy is central to that too. And I think the work of women has been um, driving that for generations, centuries. Thank you. Great Thank question. You. Yes, thanks for a, a really interesting and, and inspiring conversation. And to you too, Hannah, for such great questions. Um, as, as you were talking, I, it, it occurred to me that, um, uh, firstly, I write a lot to politicians. Great. <laughs> That's my point of view. Um, I've only ever had one direct, immediate response um, that wasn't a, a standardised one, and mm. many don't respond at all. Um, do you want to know that that, uh, that that one immediate, obvious response to that was immediately to my email was actually from Nick Xenophon. Um, huh. he's, he's the only person who actually had obviously read my letter and responded to it. Um, however, my, so my question about, is really about, it seems to me that the, the people who are in power really want to hang on to it. And um, um, while I want to get involved in, in um, sort of community action groups, I suppose, it's really hard. I mean, I, we, saw the, we all saw the example of the... Um, the um, Indigenous Australians who came together yeah. and produced the voice from the heart, and within minutes it was dismissed out of hand. So I'm just wondering, how do you have any thoughts about how to approach that and how to um, make people listen to community um, community groups um, yeah. such as that? Yeah, and, and that's incredibly dispiriting um, when you don't hear back from people and. Um, one thing that I have found really useful is this idea of um, of recognising the work that the people that you're writing to have already done. And I think they're more receptive and more likely to hear you when it's very clear that you're aware of the work that they've already done in that area. And so um, I'm trying to, to lead with empathy in that way and to say, I, I know how hard you've worked and you've achieved this, um, so it shows your awareness of the work that they've already done and, and an acknowledgement that they're probably fighting internal battles even within their organisation to, to get what they've done through. 
but then what you're proposing is a tangible way, ideally, of building on what they've done. And I think um, it's more likely to engender a, um, a positive response because they feel like you're more informed, but you also appreciate the work that they've done and you're more likely to get somewhere with them. Um, and I think being really specific about the ask is the other thing that I find really, really helpful. Um, so, uh, but it is, it, it can be really discouraging. I understand that, yeah. Thank you. Oh, hi, Jess and Hannah. Uh, thank you. Um, I've been listening most of what you've been talking about. When I first came in, Hannah was asking you a question about um, movements that look for that three and a half percent of action. I, um, my name's Kate, I belong to Extinction Rebellion. Um, and uh, one of the, th the third um, uh, demand of Extinction Rebellion is a citizens' assembly. Yes. The other two are um, that the politicians act now because we're in a climate crisis and also um, that, we, um, that they tell the truth. Now, Extinction Rebellion has been getting a bit of a bad name in the press recently. I can hardly understand why when we've only got those three demands and they are pretty universal demands of people who want climate action. Um, what do you think and what would be your advice to an organisation that's trying to get that three and a half percent but struggling because uh, the Murdoch press especially is giving us a hard time? I think it's really hard and, and I, I do think the goals of Extinction Rebellion are, are spot on and I think um, they have got a really sophisticated understanding of the what a citizens assembly could do um, and I encourage you all to have a look at the citizen um, Extinction Rebellion's example of, of um, a citizens assembly um, I think the challenge is that um, uh, you know and I think but I think what's really important is recognizing that this is a process that could depoliticize uh, climate action and I think the the reason I point to the Macron and the UK examples is to show that on both ends of politics you have a call for the same thing um, and again it's about having empathy for those people in positions elected positions because it's about giving them social license and courage to take action when they are operating within party structures and and media structures um, that don't allow them to stick their heads up and have courage um, so i think extinction rebellion is an incredible global movement that's happened in such a short time and there's a lot about it that's really admirable but i think probably the bit that has been difficult is um the biggest challenge is is, is inc being inclusive in the mission and and showing people that you empathize with um how hard their lives are already and the fear that they have that their lives will be made more difficult by climate action. And part of what I want to do is show people that your lives can be made better and we'll have a fairer future by taking action right, right away. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you, Jess. Oh, I'm, we're actually um, running out of time, I'm afraid. Uh, uh, <laughs> Let's talk after. Can you... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, we're running out of time. Um, but do uh, come and talk to Jess um, at the book signing um, tent over there and do buy her book, Glimpses of Utopia. It's incredibly uplifting and incredibly pragmatic, um, a joy to read. Um, so, yeah, thank you so much, Jess, and thank, thank you, you to the audience thank for the question. So thank you, everyone. Thank you.